If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here, Scott Thompson! There you have it. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Tom McKay on the board. Lots to chat about today. I guess the big news is it looks like there's a tentative deal in the federal uh, civil service strike, uh, at least for a portion of them. CRA apparently still out, and uh, those are on ongoing uh, negotiations. But uh, the majority have, uh, have a tentative deal over the course of the weekend and are back to work. Now, we remember that everything was stuck at 3 percent per year over a three-year deal sorry nine-year deal so that would three percent a year over the course of the deal uh obviously with uh nine percent the total they've gone that to four years at 12.6 percent which is 3.1 percent a year so i don't know uh yeah it's, it's about that 0.1%. So anyway, uh, that's where we are, and it looks like it's a, a tentative deal, and, and everybody appears to be happy, uh, which is uh, great news. And then they also get a signing bonus in there. So really, there's no loss of wages, strike, anything. Uh, you basically get however many days, 10 days off. Uh, you have to do your picket line duty, but other than that, it's a normal day. It's just like being sick uh, because, uh, of course, with the signing bonuses, make sure that any money that they lose or they get 75 bucks or strike pay or whatever it is, uh, they get reimbursed for that. So uh, no out-of-pocket expenses uh, for them as a result of uh, of the deal. Uh, so anyway, so that's looking good. But again, we're, they're still concerned about the CRA because that is still a situation. Here's what the Treasury Board President uh, Mona, uh, Mona Forche had to say and uh, feels good about this deal and it will get uh, go beyond tentative and hopefully get signed. Well, let's say that my kids were very happy that I will be able to spend time with them after a long month of negotiation. I feel very good that we have worked very hard, both negotiation teams, and I believe that we have a really good deal on the table that is reasonable, that is fair for Canadians, and that we can now resume activities. So there you go. So uh, gone from a three-year deal to a four-year deal. It's interesting how they have to package all of this, right? Like you don't want to move off of... Uh, three uh, percent over the year for the nine percent and uh, but you'll go to a four-year deal with 3.1 percent so uh, whatever as long as it gets done and it gets settled uh, that is good news and again uh, with the exception of CRA and uh, here's what uh, the Treasury Board uh, president had to say about that This government has always championed the collective bargaining process and we put all of our focus on the bargaining table. This agreement proves that the right deal for employees and Canadians could be struck at the negotiating table. And obviously CRA still out. They're still uh, at the table and negotiating as we speak and looking forward to see uh, how this will unfold. All right, so there you have a tentative deal for uh, the Federal Public Service Union, at least uh, civil service workers rather, uh, at least part of them back. Uh, still some issues with the CRA. Uh, I guess their deal quite a bit different than what we've been seeing with the uh, uh, 12.6 over 
a four-year deal. Going from a three-year deal deal to a four-year deal, basically, is what we have here. All right, what else is going on? Uh, Prime Minister still really getting hammered, and this is by uh, every opposition party in regard to election interference. More information coming out of CSIS. Uh, The Globe and Mail, uh, again, a brutal story today about an MPP who was hassled and his family hassled, threatened, because of the way he voted in the House of Commons, uh, speaking up against the Chinese Communist Party. So here we have all this chatter of uh, not only election interference, but them targeting MPs. This MP did not even know he was being targeted this way. And uh, this came out, he was contacted by the Globe and Mail, who obviously got uh, their story from uh, CSIS people that, uh, in fact, uh, targeting this MP right here in this country for how he voted and threatening his family and and those back home and such because he wasn't uh, voting in favor of uh, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, wishes when it came to the Uyghurs and, and human rights violations that are happening in uh, in China and and obviously um, a lot going on and the opposition uh, all parties demanding that something be done on this now rather than waiting for public inquiries and the whole uh, David Johnston thing I mean we need to have a registry we need to have these sorts of things set up now uh, the Globe and Mail report also going on to say that Canada is a easy target for interference because they do not have the uh, guidelines and regulations in place that we're seeing in Australia and the United States and other parts of the world. So they are specifically targeting Canada because it is so vulnerable. And everybody is pleading for the prime minister to at least do something on any of this. Not one Chinese diplomat uh, has been expelled from this country to date. And yet, of course, we're hearing uh, last week in regard to the charges being laid by the FBI and the Chinese police stations uh, in the United States. But, uh, not much happening here, and now a brand new story coming out of the Globe and Mail. More CSIS information that has leaked out that basically says that uh, Michael Chong, uh, an MP, uh, threatened, his family threatened, uh, for uh, he not voting in favor of what Beijing wants. So I don't know what more we need. I don't know how much more proof we need. Um, do you wait and have another election and see how that one goes? Uh, but clearly, uh, it is documented in this Globe and Mail article yet again that Canada is a easy target for the Chinese Communist Party. I'm sure you were uh, all glued to the screen on Saturday night when uh, off into overtime we go, and then the rest is history as the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, I think for the first time in like 500 years, have made it to the next round of, uh, of the playoffs. Funny, I mean, I was in the middle of a chat with somebody when this was uh, all going. I was like, oh, my goodness, they won. I can't believe that. We were sort of like one eye looking, one eye not. You know what I mean? Uh, but as uh, as you can tell by the excitement, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs are moving on and, of course, taking on the Florida Panthers, which when you think about it, there's a lot of Canadians, a lot of people that snowbird down in uh, in Florida. So if you're one of those people that do that and you probably come back this time of the year, you might be thinking, wow, maybe I'm going to stay down an extra couple of weeks and see where this goes with the Leafs and the playoff run and, and Panthers. We can never get tickets here. More uh, of a chance of that down there. Well, hold on until, of course, they decide to... Stop Canadians from buying tickets? Is this going to happen? Let's bring in Moshe Lander, senior economist, lecturer at Concordia University, uh, University, and is with us now. Moshe, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hello. 
What are your thoughts when you're hearing that uh, it looks like the Florida Panthers might try to keep uh, some Canadians out of the rink this year? You know, this is an increasing trend that we're seeing uh, in a, a lot of professional sports, and it's not just to keep Canadians out. It's to keep the opposing fans out, uh, especially when you're worried that you might be outnumbered. So I, I wasn't surprised to see it. Uh, it's taken one of two ways. Some people either just shrug it off and say, eh, whatever. Uh, and some people say it's a, you know, it's a bit of an amateur move here. Uh, of course, the Panthers don't exactly have the greatest of hockey histories, uh, and they would be outnumbered in their own building. So I, I can understand why they're doing it. Can they get away with the excuse? No, what we're doing here is we're just holding tickets. So we make sure we've got the hometown fans will be rewarded with them. Yeah, they're they're completely doing that. And, you know, I mean, there's nothing illegal with what they're doing. They do have the right to refuse entry to anybody that they want. And so effectively, they're just going to check to see what's the uh, what's the address that's connected to your visa card when you try and buy tickets. And they're going to say if it's not, you know, part of the 305, uh, then you're not coming. Uh, there's lots of ways around it. Of course, you can buy on secondary markets or you could uh, contact a relative that's down in Miami and ask them to buy on your behalf. But uh, you know, again, it, it's all in, in gamesmanship, and I, I don't think that it's, it's anything more than uh, just making sure that if the Leafs score, uh, it's not going to drown out everybody else in the building. Kind of like when you go to Ottawa and see a Leafs game there. Um, so what about the snowbirds that go down there every year and probably support that team, perhaps maybe more than Floridians do? Uh, is this not, you know, cutting off your, uh, you know, a, a good segment of, of the population that supports the team when it's not the playoffs? Yeah, it, there is the risk that it can backfire and there is the risk that the place could end up partially uh, less than capacity. Uh, you know, I would assume that the Panthers know what they're doing and they're not just implementing this willy-nilly. So they've probably got some indication as to how, how much buzz they're going to have. Remember that the Heat are down there as well uh, and they're playing in their conference semifinals and that's going to be a hard ticket to get your hands on. So it's possible that all they're hoping for is that the spillover from the Heat will offset the loss of the, the Snowbirds that would want to come see whether it's the Panthers or the Leafs. So do you think this will do much to improve ticket sales for the Florida Panthers over time? Over time? No, I, I think winning improves ticket sales over time. And especially mm. in Miami, that, that is a, a market that if you have a winner, they back you. And if you don't have a winner, uh, there's about 100 better things to do down on South Beach uh, than going to any sort of sporting event. So it, it's winning will cure all ills. Um, if they find a quick exit, especially after last year where they were the best team in the league and they found an early way out. Uh, this is where the fans just shrug and say, well, then wake me up when we get to the Stanley Cup final and we can throw the wrath. Mm. <laughs> How uh, do you think they'll be able to enforce this? I mean, I, I guess at the end of the day, it's a mail order thing. And, and if you, you've got uh, an address that's outside of the uh, Florida uh, uh, catchment area or area code, as you put it, then those tickets just don't go out. I mean, is that how they're going to try to do this? Yeah, they'll they'll put a restriction based on you know what what's attached to your visa card. So there's lots of ways around it. They might try and rough you up a little bit. You know, somebody shows up in a Leafs jersey, and they might try and tell you, you know, take it off. It's the old Elaine Bennis wearing the Orioles hat at a Yankees game, right? Um, but I, I don't know that at the end of the day that they keep able to start you know throwing people out because they cheer if the Leafs score. So. Uh, it, it's probably more optics and cosmetic, and it's probably more to try and sell to their Miami fan base that this is why you want to come mm. out. Um, I know going for years to Sabres games, 
it was always frustrating because the Leafs fans would come out in huge numbers. It was a game that I'd rather just avoid because yeah. I don't want to be outnumbered in my own building. So, I, I, again, I, I think there's an optics element here that they're not really going to be able to enforce it all that strictly. Uh, again, we saw this in Ottawa. Um, I remember living there for a period of time, and whenever the Leafs were in town, obviously it was a big night. But there were, t- in many cases, half the place was in blue and white, and half of it was in in red and white. And I remember the uh, the mayor of Ottawa at the time kind of you know slamming people for doing that and such. And then it kind of backfired and, and left a uh, a bad taste. The fact that this is two different countries, completely different scenario. Yeah, I don't know that, you know, I guess, you know, Trump's not in the White House, so we can't turn this into an international incident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't think that there's any real um, damage that's done here. I think as long as people keep their mouths shut and don't weigh into, you know, social commentary on whether this is appropriate or inappropriate or if we're going to bring a lawsuit. And yeah, I think as long as we understand that it's gamesmanship and, and that's about it. it, it's that, you know, the Panthers are trying to make sure that they truly have a home ice advantage for uh, the two, three games that they have. And, uh, you know, uh, if Toronto doesn't like it, then they can they can come up with their own promotion to try and you know, mm. keep the Panthers fans out or, or do something that makes fun of, uh, of, of Florida taking that sort of stance. Moshe Lander with, her, uh, with us, senior economist, lecturer at Concordia University, talking about the Maple Leafs and the Florida Panthers. Uh, but Florida doesn't want you down there and trying to restrict tickets just to those that are in the hometown. There you go. It's all part of the fun. Moshe, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You got it. Go Casco. There you go. Oh, all right. So uh, I think we talked about this a while ago with Liz Russell. She was at some like a, a, a party, a, maybe it was a bachelorette thing. I don't know what it is. A shower or something. And, you know, instead of putting the bows on your hat and, and you know, opening presents, they're throwing axes now. So why not? And then uh, Will Erskine, who's content producer for the show and all the guests that you hear, he books all of that. Um, he started throwing around axes. And he's also boxing, so I don't know. I think he's becoming quite a fearless critter, uh, critter as far as I know. I'm staying behind him. I'm not going in front of him. <laughs> uh, but I asked Will to send me a video, and sure enough, he did, uh, of him at the axe-throwing place. And sure enough, he lines one up and, boom, lets it go. And, man, it was a bullseye. It was a target. It was a great hit. And uh, so I thought it would be fun to have Will on the show and just try to explain to us why he, just, he, why he, he, he sees relief in throwing axes around the place. And Will Erskine, content producer for Hamilton Today, today is with us now. Will, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, although uh, from some of your uh, introduction, maybe I should be concerned. Do, do you think I'm not doing well, Scott? <laughs> You know, I mean, you're staying in shape, you're boxing. There's no better way to stay in shape than doing boxing and stuff. But then axe throwing, I'm thinking, my goodness, you certainly got, uh, you don't want to be taking Will off is what I'm saying, I guess. <laughs> so uh, first of all, let's start with the axe throwing. How did you get into this? Yeah, so uh, I'd say some of it comes also from just coming out of the out of all the lockdowns and the pandemic and everything that I definitely got into more uh, physical activity during the pandemic and then coming out of it, you want something that's more group based, that's, you know, meeting more people, getting invited things. And yeah, so that's how I kind of got into axe throwing, boxing. I'm doing softball over the summer, that sort of thing. Um, specifically for axe throwing, though, I had a couple friends who had gotten onto it just a, a few months earlier than me and had been in some of the competitions, had joined a league, and they invited me out uh, to come to one of the, the big, you know, tournament, the finale night. Uh, and I got hooked. It was thrilling to watch, especially when you have an, a, a, you're have you invested in some of your friends actually making it 
uh, to the final round. And in that case, my friend Connie, she won. She became league champion. She has now been league champion three times in a row. Um, and I joined, and she's the one who actually knocked me out of the championships this uh, this last uh, Thursday. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, so, like a bowling league, man. There's like you belong oh, to yeah. a club, and and you how you compete. Yeah, it definitely can be compared to bowling, and I think the the closest is also darts. Uh, just as far as like how the game actually yeah. looks from a distance, it's just larger board. And if this thing goes, if what you're throwing in axe throwing goes off to the side a little too far, it's it's bit more of a problem than a dart. But that's why we have actual <laughs> we have actual lanes and gates and all sorts of protections. So talk about where you do this. Yeah, so I do it actually uh, down at Battle, uh, which is uh, just off. Uh, it's 80 James Street North. It's right at the intersection with York Boulevard. Uh, Battle is part of the International Axe Throwing uh, Federation. They have locations a- across Canada and the U.S., and there's all sorts of different axe throwing places that are part of the IATF. Uh, I'm part of, yeah, I've been doing like Thursday night leagues. There's a couple different leagues that run throughout the week. You can join up and, uh, you know, do it. runs about six sections, and then there's, uh, as I said, the, the big finale, the big tournament, uh, which if you've qualified for, you get to go into and you have a shot at the big trophy. Uh, they're pretty fun. They're, you know, you can also just sign up and just come for a night or whatever. Like you can do a, a one hour session. People go there on, on for like axe throwing dates is a big thing, Scott. There's usually while we're doing our league in one half of the, uh, of the building, there's people at the uh, end corner, you know, Oh yeah. What, you know, oh, what's your favorite color? Axe throwing. That sort of thing goes down as well. <laughs> Hey, does anybody like put a picture up there of somebody? I guess that's. <laughs> I have never that seen allowed? that, but I have heard jokes of that. I've not unconfirmed, unconfirmed yet. I know. Once you get to the dating angle, you never know. Right? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so, so when you first started this, like, do people show you how to do it? Do they teach you, or do they? Here's your axe, just like your bowling shoes, and out you go. Uh, no, you definitely you get some training. Uh, and while I'm here, I'll say shout out to O'Neill and Tyler. They're the two who like, uh, you know, run, ran things over at Battle and walked me through it. You get some initial pointers, and then it's up to you to sort of figure it out. But they're watching you. They're making sure you're safe. They're making sure that uh, you know you're getting your form better, that you're improving. Because if you're going to be signing up for a league, they don't want you just kind of going in circles. They're going to give you pointers so that you actually see the progress and what you're going through. A lot of it, though, is uh, what surprised me is it's so much more of a mental sport than it is even physical. Like it really comes down to your concentration, to you, you know, getting your 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 body in order. You can psych yourself out so easily. And that's actually what happened to me in my first season. I had made it. I had qualified for the finals. And the week beforehand, I completely forgot how to throw. And I had to mm. change up how I do it. Just completely overhaul. I have a whole different way of do, of throwing now because I had to re rework it because I'd psyched myself out so much. So they give you your pointers. They get your form ready. They, they get you set up for it. But at the end of the day, it's down to you. And that's why it's a fascinating sport. And it's a lot of fun because it's a very meditative practice while you're at it. So are you actually competing? Like, I know that you you go, it's not like at a pub where everybody's just throwing darts at a board. Uh, yeah. You've got your own lane because for obvious safety reasons and such. But are you playing with another person or do you play, keep score, and then you compare your scores? Yeah, no, no. It's it's uh, two at a time. You go up against someone, mm. and that's where the mental part comes in, too. Because it's one thing if you're just practicing on your own in the lane. But the instant you're you're next to another person, you're feeding off what they're doing. 
Uh, yeah, you can, especially as I said, say you're going up against a, a sibling or your best friend or someone you took on a date, something like that. Uh, that's a whole different headspace that you can get in. And, uh, yeah, you gotta not get uh, psyched out if they're pulling ahead of you in the sport, just like in anything else. You just stay focused. You want the bullseye. Or, you know, if you want to get some extra points near the end of the game, you got to aim for something that's about the size of an inch up in the right corner. Uh, darts, you get three. One axe or three? Uh, five axes each round, three rounds oh. per game. Yeah, and if you get if you get a tie... They bring out the big axe, and that's like the big, uh, that's like what Jack Nicholson's carrying around in The Shining at the end. You take one of those, and you got to whip it two-handed from a further distance. Oh, man. So you throw one axe, and then you go get it, then someone throws another axe, correct? Uh, no, both throw at the same time, or, or roughly. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. I got, well, the point is, you don't, you don't want one guy down there getting the axe while someone else is warming up, I guess, is what you're Bullseye. looking for. Bullseye. not looking for, yeah. <laughs> So, um, do you have your own axe? I do. do. I do have my own axe. Wow. Yeah. So, like, how long before you purchased your own axe? Sounds like we're talking about guitars. Yeah, I know. How long (laughs) before you purchased your own axe? Uh, I purchased it for uh, first session. I knew going in I wanted something that I could work with, get used to. Uh, She does not have a name yet, though. She. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Can you tell I'm into this sport, Scott? Yeah, I can. Is your like is your axe uh, customized? Is it like painted up to look a certain way? Or? No, not quite. Although there are people there. There's one person I compete against uh, who's a pretty tough customer. Cherry. Her axe is bedazzled red, so that wow. thing can blind and- you if it hits the lights right. <laughs> Now, the closest I remember seeing to this is, like, uh, during the old CNA, they used to have the Lumberjack show, and where guys yeah, would chainsaw, yeah. climb poles, saw, do everything, and I think axe throwing was part of that. Is this just axe throwing, or do you get into other Lumberjack fair? Uh, no, uh, no other Lumberjack fair uh, as of yet for myself, no. <laughs> All right, Will Erskine with us, throwing the axes around, uh, content producer for Hamilton Today, and in his spare time, uh, boxes and throws axes. I will leave it at that. Uh, thank you, Will. Good luck. Stay safe. <laughs> I will. Thank you. We went uh, away for the weekend, and, of course, we heard that there was a new t- uh, deal tabled by the government to the Public Service Alliance of Canada Union that represents the federal uh, striking civil servants, and they were going to mull it over the weekend, and then we hear today that, in fact, the tentative deal has been reached, at least with some of them, uh, and not a three-year deal, but a four-year deal. To talk more about this, Mackenzie Gray with us, national reporter for Global. Global News covering Parliament Hill and here now. Mackenzie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you very much for having me. So what do we know about this deal, Mackenzie? Because, again, it seemed that we were a sticking point at three years and 3% a year over the course of this deal, obviously equaling 9%. Now we go to 12 uh, sorry, 12% and a four-year deal. How did this come about? It seems that just uh, we, I, we get around not letting everybody down by extending the deal and changing a bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't know about that. I, I would think that there, and I know there are a number of union members out there who are fairly disappointed thinking, well, why did we go on strike? We basically ended up just taking a one-year deal, a, a version of what the government was offering, but just for a year longer. The federal government has been saying they wanted to give 9% increase over three years. They end up at 12% over four. You know, the union had been saying, well, we want 13.5% over three years, and if we get anything less than that, and Chris Elward, the head of the union, was saying this, it's basically a pay cut for our members because inflation is eaten into what they had made at that point in time. I interviewed Chris Alward a couple minutes ago, actually, and he said, look, this was the best deal that we could have got 
I was hearing from the members out on the picket line when, when Chris Albert was up there, he was saying this, that they were wondering why we were still at the table and what was going on. And he thought, you know what, even if we waited three or four or five more days and we stayed out even longer, that they didn't believe that they were going to get a deal. And this ties in with what Mona Forte and the federal government have been saying, that this was their final offer. And I, I certainly think, you know, I asked Mr. Alward this, whether or not he thought the final offer meant that if they didn't accept it, back-to-work legislation would come in. Uh, he said that there was no talk about that around the table. Uh, but many people that I spoke to, including the, the uh, former head of the Privy Council, had said, look, if they don't get a deal on the weekend or in the coming days, they're going to get legislated back to work. And I think that is likely what would have happened uh, if they hadn't come to an agreement uh, early this morning. A bonus that they got a four-year deal as opposed to a three? I mean, it depends how you view it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they didn't get the wage increase that they were hoping for. Um, but they did get more certainty over the long run. They don't have to go through this process again. You know, the union was spending, uh, you know, $75 a day per person that came out to strike. Uh, I did some rough math on that before. Uh, if they got the big numbers like they were saying they did, and, and the crowds were quite strong here in Ottawa and different other places, uh, you know, they could have been spending upwards of uh, $7.5 million a day on that, which would have depleted their strike funds substantially. So they might not have the resources to go back to the table within a year, which is what they would have needed to have done in a in the current environment with the, how this collective agreement would have worked and potentially strike again. So it gives the union some time to build their reserves up, gives them certainty for members. And it also means the government doesn't have to go into these negotiations again and risk another strike. Uh, there was some chatter, Mackenzie, over uh, them still being paid because you're paid on a two week, uh, uh, two weeks later, obviously, uh, and then a signing bonus. So, at the end of the day, are striking workers out of pocket anything? Did that seventy five dollars even kick in? It did kick in, uh, and they will get paid for that. Um, they will not get paid for the time that they were off. Now, they were getting paid. You know, they got their paycheck while they were out on the picket line because the that's how their pay period works, essentially. Yeah. Everyone has different pay periods, and, and, you know, that was the time in which they should have been paid. Uh, you know, the federal government says that they will not get paid for the period that they were on strike, but you're right to mention that that $2,500 um, bonus, essentially, that they're going to be getting out this one-time bonus uh, certainly yeah. does make uh, many of the, the workers who were out on strike, in particular the lower-wage workers, basically they're made whole again by this. Uh, and another key thing to note about this, too, it includes, um, you know, this is $2,500 is included in pensionable time. And the way the federal government pensions work, it's your best five years. So for some of the lower income workers, that could help them in the even longer run in terms of what your best five years are for how your pension works. Uh, so some, some minor things there. Um, but in the end, you know, the big thing was the high end wage number and the union did not get particularly close to what they had wanted. And essentially, you know, there are members wondering, why did we go on strike if our wages and work from home, which they really didn't get any progress on that much, um, the two key things people wanted really didn't move much from where the government had originally said they were right before the strike happened. Uh, give us an update on the uh, work from home, because again, there was uh, obviously that was another sticking issue, but more difficult to do within a union because there is no sort of one size fits all. So how did they come to a solution over remote work? So the union had been saying they wanted to insert into the collective agreement the right to work from home, which means you could go through the formal process of grieving your manager if there was an issue with the working from home process that you wanted to do. The Liberals' policy at this point in time, which isn't in the collective agreement, uh, is that you can work uh, from home up to three days a week. You can come into the office two days a week and work from home three days. 
Um, but that's just a policy. You know, the argument that we heard from many on the picket line was that, well, they could just change that at any point in time. Pierre Polyev becomes prime minister. Well, five days a week, you're all back right now. And that is within the purview of the government as the employer to say that. But we talked to a labor lawyer earlier today and said that the, the approach that's been taken, which was reviewing all these things on an individual case-by-case basis by different managers, actually might be a win for both sides. It saves the union money from not having to grieve all these things on a regular basis and saves the employer money by not having to participate in these lengthy processes where you have to put a lot of things forward. So that might actually be a way uh, to, to make things work for everybody, but it's certainly far below what the union had been asking for on a very key demand, in particular here in Ottawa, where, let me tell you, people don't want to come downtown to go to work. And Mackenzie Gray with us, national reporter for Global News covering Parliament Hill, a tentative agreement with the Public Service Alliance of Canada in place, just waiting for CRA who are still at the table. Mackenzie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, so uh, this uh, morning finding out that uh, some of uh, the federal government employees have had a deal. Uh, Another separate union, though, another separate division with uh, the Canada Revenue Agency still out. They are still at the table uh, discussing, but uh, the good news is at least there is something moving forward. We want to ask Franco Terrazano about that. And another suggestion, uh, Ottawa floating out the idea of doing taxes for low-income Canadians. So it's already done. You just basically input the numbers and uh, hit enter. The rest is history, as they say. Is this a good idea? Let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and is with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I am well. Thanks for having me on. So, Franco, first of all, your thoughts, the uh, end of this strike, it looks like a tentative deal anyway on the table, as opposed to a three-year deal. It's now a four-year deal. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, it looks like it's going to cost taxpayers a ton of money. I'm seeing some estimates of about $1.3 billion a year. To put that into context, we've just seen the total cost of the bureaucracy balloon by uh, 31% over two years to $60 billion. So now add another billion plus a year on top of that. But hey, you want to know the craziest thing that I've seen from the tentative agreement? Now, remember, we haven't been privy to all the documents, but just on the surface level, this one really caught my eye. The government is giving the PSAC bureaucrats who are on strike a $2,500 lump sum payment. Now, you might be wondering why we think that is outrageous. Well, when they were striking for eight days, eight working days, they would have lost their salary of up to $2,300. So we essentially just put taxpayers on the hook to cover the strike days for the PSAC bureaucrats. So for them, just like another day off then, not not a, a sacrifice of pay or any of that? No, no sacrifice in pay. Because of the lump sum that was 2500 bucks. if you look at the average salary for one of the striking PSAC bureaucrats, um, they would have lost up to $2,300 for striking for eight days. So isn't that just a little bit of a coincidence, hey? They would have lost salary uh, costing them about $2,300, but then the government, just by coincidence, is giving them a $2,500 lump sum payment. So make no mistake about it, that is essentially putting taxpayers on the hook for the days that these bureaucrats missed because they were on the picket lines. And also, too, like $2,500 for, for 120,000 employees? 
that's a cost to the taxpayer of uh, of about three hundred million dollars. Uh, are you surprised that they did go for a three year, a four year deal, which is basically the the three year deal extended? Many said on on Wednesday, Thursday of last week, the government said they weren't going anywhere above three percent a year, uh, and the union said they weren't budging off theirs. Yet it's twelve over four years. Are you surprised at that? You know, I'm not sure. I I, I certainly was surprised. I mean, I, I it certainly seemed like what we were hearing in the news was three years. Um, to be completely frank with you, though, like it's tough to say whether we're surprised or not, because we have to do a deep dive into these um, negotiations and the contracts. And let me tell you why. Right. We're hearing that it's going to be what a 12.6 percent compounded over the lifetime of the agreement. So 2021 to 2024, 12.6 percent. But that's just wages. Right. When you when you dive into these negotiations, it's like an iceberg. What you see is the salary that 12.6 over four years. Uh, but what you don't see is the biggest part of the iceberg, the biggest cost to taxpayers, and it's all the different benefits that government employees get, uh, whether it's the uh, platinum pension, the shift premiums, uh, things of that nature, the lump sum payment, for example, that puts us on the hook for their strike. So it's tough to say just exactly what we're on the hook for, given the details that both parties have released. All right, Franco, uh, your opinion on the thoughts that uh, maybe the government should be handling our taxes for us. And what do you think of this? Well, you know, I I, uh, I sympathize with everyone who wants to pull their teeth out come tax time. But I actually think it's quite a bad idea for for three different reasons. And I'm happy to dive into them deeper. But number one, it's the incentive problem. OK, us taxpayers, we want to minimize the amount of tax we pay to the government, of course, legally, we want to minimize that tax burden. Uh, but the government wants to increase the amount of revenue they collect from us. Okay, so their incentive is to always take more money. And so that's one reason that it's an issue. Number two, it's just the sheer incompetence. Do we really want to give the CRA, uh, the, the group of bureaucrats who are on strike right now, the group of bureaucrats who barely pick up the phone when they are working, and also the group of bureaucrats that gave 391 dead people to serve, do we really want to give them more power? And number three is uh, they really don't have the information to do this type of job broadly. And uh, we certainly don't want to give them the power to be able to tap into our privacy like that. All right. Uh, Do you think uh, as far as many said, Franco, that once this deal gets done, it'll reflect other businesses, other industry. Do you think this is a trend setting deal that the rest of the world will have to follow the rest of Canadian industry? Well, for businesses, it's tough to tell. What is going to impact businesses is that they're going to face a higher tax burden because of this, right? This is a cost of an additional $1.3 billion uh, for the PSAC bureaucrats. But the big one is for taxpayers, because let me fill your listeners in on a little secret here. So what these what union negotiators do in governments, all levels of government, provincial, municipal agencies, is they watch what the other, other government unions do. And when they get big wage increases... The other union negotiators point to them and say, hey, we want big increases too. So what we're worried about is the ratchet effect that uh, may lead to other government union negotiators, maybe in the feds, provincial, municipalities, who want to push for huge demands as well. And of course, that final bill will fall on the taxpayer. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director on the tentative deal and perhaps the government doing taxes for you. Uh, Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thanks for having me on. 
We heard uh, this morning, of course, on Friday, uh, a tentative, uh, sorry, on Friday, another deal went out to uh, the public sector union uh, from the government, uh, took off behind closed doors and uh, worked over the weekend, and then finding out today that, in fact, a tentative agreement has come uh, from about 120,000 of the public servants uh, that are out. The uh, CRA still out. It's a different situation, uh, but are still at the table. To talk more about all of this, Alison Braley, Tay with us, Associate Professor, Department of Labor Studies, Brock University, and with us now. Allison, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing quite well, Scott. Thanks. Oh, your thoughts here, Allison. I remember, I think it was like Wednesday or Thursday, the deal was on the table for 3% a year over three years, 9% total. Uh, the government said that that was it, no more. And obviously the union was set on uh, that not being enough. And it looked like uh, we were sort of at a stalemate. And then over the weekend, we hear that it's in fact a four-year deal. So explain to us your thoughts on how we got to a three to a four and how that makes it all work. Well, I mean, I think that at the end of the the day, we were looking at the possibility or the parties uh, were looking at the possibility of a kind of a war of attrition, right? I mean, once you have put all your lines in the sand, uh, it, it's hard to to walk back from that. So there was, I think, a lot of pressure uh, on both parties to, uh, you know, see if they could actually get to uh, to a settlement. And, uh, you know, negotiations are about compromise. They are about give and take. You trade off things with the other side, but you also trade off things uh, internally among your own asks or among the things that you, you know, you don't want to give. And so I think that there, you know, were a number of outstanding issues, the two that kept rising to the top as seemingly the most uh, important, let's say, uh, to the parties were about wages and uh, issues around remote work. And I think what we see here is that the uh, union probably got less than they wanted on remote work because uh, they did not get language in their collective agreement, which had been one of the things that they had been most pushing for. Uh, On the other hand, the government gave uh, more on wages than uh, they uh, otherwise would have wanted to give because uh, they were at 9% for a a while there. And, And then, of course, they have moved up. Uh, from there. So uh, I think it's a, it's a win all around in the sense that, uh, you know, they, they were able to get a negotiated settlement and one that I think got the union more than they would have gotten if they hadn't actually taken the strike action. So uh, that's, I think, what we're looking at right now. Uh, an arbitrator was going to give them the came up, but that's how they got the 3% per year. Uh, it's 12.6. So it's like 3.2 a year. Uh, again, worth it uh, when we could have been at, we could have been actually there without a strike. Well, I mean, I, it's not quite three uh, percent per year anyway, because of course the the first year that the government was offering was one point five percent. That hasn't changed. Uh, the second year, the increase would be more. So, I mean, those kind of differences do matter because how you lay out the increases uh, changes what the actual amount is in the end, uh, and how you describe the the money actually matters as well. So, for instance, the PSAC is saying twelve point six. Uh, Treasury Board is saying it's 11.5. And both numbers are correct because it really kind of depends on what you're counting. Are you counting the compounded amount? Are you counting, you know, there's like a 0.5% in the third year that I think goes to just a, a particular portion of the larger group? Uh, so uh, the, the numbers do kind of matter and, and they are slightly different one from the other, even though both are arguably correct. But I, I, again, I think the, 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 the real issue here is uh, the point of strikes is not to uh, stop negotiations. The point is to aid negotiations by ratcheting up, 
ratcheting up the pressure in one of the few ways that that workers are able to do. Uh, and so I, I don't think there's any reason to think that they would have gotten to quite where they did if they hadn't gone on strike. So um, I, I don't think it, we can we can in, in retrospect look and say that they would have gotten that because, of course, Treasury Board wasn't offering even nine percent until they had taken their actual first day of strike. Uh, I thought it was an arbitrator that arrived that arrived at that figure. Well, I mean, there's something called the Public Interest Commission, uh, which long ago had looked at their issues when they had first declared uh, an impasse. Uh, and the uh, Public Interest Commission, I understand, had recommended 9%. And so I think Treasury Board was quite confident in saying for, you know, that remaining week for, you know, a number of days, we're saying, you know, 9%, 9%, that's what the Public Interest Commission, which is a third body, a third party sort of, you know, arguably neutral uh, commission. And that's where that 9% came from. Uh, but obviously the PSAC disagreed that 9% was sufficient. Um, and, it, you know, the inflationary pressures that workers are facing, uh, you know, are, have been quite extraordinary. And so when you look at that and you think about, well, you know, the 9%, you know, unless you're keeping pace with inflation, then you're actually losing. Uh, and so the goal of not only keeping pace with inflation, but maybe getting a little bit more um, is something that has been largely out of reach for unions for a while now. And I think, again, with the PSAC, which has not been on a nationwide strike uh, in the last 30 years, uh, you know, when they finally use their strike action to uh, to you know to press the issue, I, I think that's quite actually an important moment. And so, you know, yeah, the Public Interest Commission recommended nine percent, and at the end of the day, uh, it was settled in other ways. Uh, remote working, obviously, a sticking issue, Allison, as much as mm -hmm. uh, the the wages were and such. Um, I, I understand where the difficulty is. I mean, one size doesn't fit all here. I mean, mm -hmm. what works for some doesn't work for uh, another, depending on the situation. How do you resolve this around remote work if one size does not fit all? Well, I mean, the PSAC has said, of course, uh, you know, it has an interest in, of course, putting a, a, you know, a good face on it. Uh, they did get uh, a letter of understanding. It's not part of this collective agreement, but it is, uh, you know, kind of a, a formalized gentleman's agreement, if we can forgive the somewhat sexist language, um, that basically commits the employer to a, a certain kind of process around individual PSAC members making, you know, case by case requests about their own particular work arrangement. Uh, and it commits the employer to actually providing reasons for their decision. So if they're going to turn that person down, they have to provide reasons in writing. And that does provide the union with something, uh, because of course, at the very least, it will help guard against arbitrariness. It will help guard against, you know, management exercising its rights, uh, you know, in, in, in unfair ways, because, you know, this person, maybe they like, and maybe that person, not so much. Um, so it's not that there was no progress made at all. Um, it's just that it didn't get into the collective agreement. But they also did commit to reviewing their entire sort of, you know, telework arrangement, which had not been updated um, uh, post-COVID. In fact, hadn't been updated in many, many years pre-COVID. Uh, so there has been some movement on that. And I can't help but think, given how big an issue this has been for the PSAC, uh, clearly it was a central issue in the strike uh, and the fact that it's an issue for workers all over the place and that the uh, pandemic really put that into stark relief, it, it's hard to see that there won't be more pressure and more movement on those kinds of issues 
in future rounds of bargaining. Allison Braley Rattay with us, Associate Professor, Department of Labor Studies, Brock University. A tentative deal has been reached with government employees. Allison, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks very much for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've been talking about this forever, as has the Globe and Mail, and more information coming out today. China views Canada as a high priority for interference, so says the CSIS report. That's the latest from Robert Fife and Stephen Chase of the Globe. Uh, the first paragraph or so says China sees Canada as a high priority target and employs incentives and punishment as part of a vast influence network directed legislators, business executives, communities in this country, according to a top-secret intelligence assessment from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS. Uh, the report, an overview of Chinese government foreign interference in Canada, ranging from investigating a conservative MP's relatives in China to harassing a, man, a mainland Chinese student in Canada for publicly supporting Hong Kong's democracy uh, movement. The report warned that Beijing is the foremost perpetrator of foreign interference in Canada. Its agents are unconcerned about repercussions, the report says, because of the lack of obstacles such as foreign influence registry and the kind established in the United States and Australia. To talk more about all of this, Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter with the Globe and Mail. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, glad to be here. So, Stephen, you guys have been talking about this for an awfully long time. We all have. What's different now, especially with these allegations and what's been happening with interference of an actual MP? Yeah, this is actually, you know, the latest of a number of warnings produced by the uh, by Canada's Security Service in recent recent years that lay out a problem. This one also lays out a solution, which it says we really need in- disincentives for for this foreign interference. We need people to be indicted for it. We need uh, foreign influence registry. And this one in particular, it also talks about the targeting of conservative MPs and others associated with the um, uh, 2021 parliamentary motion that Canada passed. Canada is one of the first countries in the world to pass a motion that condemned China's oppression in its Xinjiang region, its oppression of Uyghurs, uh, and other Turkic minorities as, as, as tantamount to genocide. The Chinese government did not like that. And in the report, uh, in the CSIS report, it says that the Ministry of State Security, which is China's security service, is taking specific actions to target Canadian MPs linked to this motion. And of course, the sponsor of the motion uh, is Michael Chong. It, this report says that they actually sought and researched information on an, an unnamed Canadian MPs' relatives in the PRC, in the, in the People's Republic of China. And then a national security source, told, who we're not identifying, told the, told the Globe and Mail that the MP that is unnamed in the report is, in fact, Michael Chong. And, in fact, Michael Chong does have relatives in Hong Kong. And the report also said that um, Zhao Wei, a Chinese diplomat in Canada, was working on the matter, was conducting the research involved here. Uh, and he was not even aware, the MP Michael Chong was not even aware that this was going on. He found out through this report, through your reporting. Is that accurate? Yeah, he, he was, um, he was uh, blindsided, did not know this. Nobody had thought to warn him. And, of course, that's where the story has developed today. I can describe that if you want. Yeah, go ahead. 
So what happened is Mr. Uh, Chong put out a statement today saying, uh, uh, I, I never knew about this. Uh, I should have been warned. Uh, why is this diplomat still operating in Canada? Why hasn't he been expelled? The matter uh, came to the House today, to the House of Commons in question period. The opposition asked the Prime Minister about this, and the Prime Minister said he was shocked to learn about it, and he said this shouldn't be happening, and he said he's asked security officials to investigate this. Uh, and he himself said this should not be happening. Uh, it's unacceptable. The opposition asked why this diplomat um, is still in Canada, why he hasn't been expelled yet. We didn't get an answer from the Prime Minister on that, uh, but he did point out that his government wants to bring in a foreign influence registry. And um, so it went back and forth on that point. But the uh, the fact is, is that uh, Trudeau has now said, the Prime Minister has now said that uh, this shouldn't be happening and he's going to get to the bottom of it. So hopefully we'll find out more in a few days. It seemed to really torque up the heat, though, in the House of Commons today because this uh, was personal. Because even MPs for an MP from the Liberal Party got up and said this cannot be going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, People in Canada, this is a democracy, it's a liberal democracy, we have rights and freedoms. You're not supposed to be um, uh, harassed or intimidated for your views, and your your family shouldn't suffer because the foreign government doesn't like what you're doing. So, uh, also in the article, that Canada is a, uh, viewed by China, is a high-priority target, an easy target, uh, incentives and punish, incentives and punishment and such because of this. Is this, do you think, going to speed anything up, that they're actually calling Canada a high-priority target? Uh, well, um, the fact that it's become public now is, I think, going to help uh, put pressure on the government. Uh, the actual words in the report were is that these these threat actors, these people conducting the interference, the harassment, the intimidation, and so on, they perceive their activities in Canada to be low risk and high reward. So yes, the release of this document, the release of this warning with the uh, the you know explosive information in it is certainly going to put pressure on the government. As you know, the former Governor General David Johnson was hired in March uh, as the, this uh, reporting rolled out about these the, what China's been doing. He's been hired to investigate, and he's supposed to come back in three weeks from now and say whether we need a public inquiry or not. All right. The article, China views Canada as a high priority for interferences, ceases. It's in the Globe and Mail. Stephen Chase with a senior parliamentary reporter also working on this with Robert Fife. Stephen, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, you're welcome. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We remember on Thursday, uh, Wednesday, Thursday of last week, it seemed that there was a line drawn in the sand at 3% a year over three years. That was nine years. That was all the government had to offer. Uh, the union said, nope, that's not good enough for us. And then all of a sudden, Friday, a new deal goes from the government uh, to the union. And over the course of the weekend, we find out this morning that, uh, in fact, a tentative deal has been reached. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, and is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. So your thoughts on how we got a resolution here? It seemed everybody was sort of drawing a line in the sand at 3%. You're either on one side or the other. And then over the course of the weekend, a new offer. And then voila, as of uh, this morning, we have a tentative agreement. But instead of a three-year deal, 
at three percent a year and nine. That it looks like it is a four-year deal at twelve and a half, twelve point six, which is about three point two percent a year. Are you surprised this went from a three-year deal to a four-year deal? Uh, I was. I'll be very frank. I I thought that. Um, uh, I, I want to challenge you in a moment on the on the percentage increase because I don't think it's that high. Uh, but um, there was a, there was some kind of an inducement there, and I, I'm guessing it was the uh, the one time one off top up of twenty five hundred um, from the government's point of view. That's attractive because that gives them four years of stability with the single largest union in the government of Canada. Now there are many unions in the government of Canada, but um, uh, this one's the biggest. The PSAC with 150,000. There's only 320,000 uh, public servants in the federal government in the what's called I don't want to get in the weeds, but in the core public service, not the uh, the greater public service, which includes military, RCMP, that sort of thing. The core public service is the public service that your listeners deal with. You know, unemployment insurance, old age pensions, Canada, you know, all that stuff. And uh, but they, the, but to your your question. Uh, the the government announced it's on their website that they granted 11.5 percent over four years uh, based on what that third party uh, mediator recommended, the Public Interest Commission, the line. And it's very clear they held the line. And I think what happened was that PSAC realized they were not going to budge, especially after Christia Freeling came out, even though she's not. People can say, what's wrong with that? Well, she's not in the negotiations. Finance ministers normally do not involve themselves in negotiations with unions in in, in Ottawa. Uh, it's the role of the minister of the Treasury Board, which uh, all this jargon, but they are deemed to be the employer of the public service. According to a law of parliament, it says the Treasury Board's it. So whoever's the minister of the Treasury Board is the person who negotiates with the unions. Very unusual for the finance minister to intervene publicly and make a comment. Very unusual. But she did. And I thought it was very clear. She was sending a a signal. Look, this is it. You are not getting more. Period. And when it comes from the finance minister, you know, it's not a negotiating ploy. So I think that that helped nudge uh, the PSAC forward. And then to, but uh, then I think that the government of Canada, the Treasury Board minister, did back down and compromise on the remote work rules as I predicted they would, I, I, not because I was clairvoyant, but because there were two major issues wages and remote work. The government made it very clear that they were not going to, uh, they were not going to budge on uh, remote work. So they, what they did was, they decided uh, they weren't going to budge. I'm sorry on wages. So what they did do is they budged, they 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 fudged, they moved back and compromised on the remote work. They didn't. I just again, I'm trying to sort of parse parse this for your listeners who are not uh, familiar with all the Ottawa jargon. They didn't put it in the collective agreement. Uh, that's a management uh, to, uh, right to determine whether someone is going to uh, be allowed to work at home or not. But what the government did do is said, look, we'll revisit the uh, the telework agreement, which is a policy framework. And they said, and we're going to leave it up to the individual, the individual supervisor. Now, that's a huge step back from what Treasury Board was saying for the last six, nine months when they said, no, 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 we, the Treasury Board, are ordering 
all of you back to work. In other words, to put it very concretely, they went from a, a macro policy on remote work, one size fits all, you must all go back to work, to they went to the very opposite end to saying it's, well, you know, we're not going to do top down, we'll do bottom up and let individual managers in the individual departments decide if you can work remotely. That to me is big. That's a compromise. And that's what they were looking for. So I think that that's what brought the deal, uh, brought them to an agreement. Uh, many in the union said last week they're striking for all of us. How does this affect the rest in the private industry? Does it make an impact? I think it will. Uh, and I don't mean the money. I, I mean, uh, you know, wages are negotiated. I mean, other than if they had gone double digit, uh, meaning if they had given more than, you know, like four or five percent a year, uh, that would have created enormous problems for the government. They would have been attacked by everyone from Pierre Polyev to the Globe and Mail to ordinary Canadians saying, we're not getting that. So why are you giving it to those fat cats in Ottawa? So they couldn't they couldn't do that. And, and they didn't. But uh, and and uh, but the important thing is on the remote work. Because it may seem to some people saying, well, what's the big deal about remote work? There's a big debate going on right now. I, I know he's an American, Jamie Dimon, uh, J.P. Morgan CEO. He has been very publicly contemptuous and dismissive of remote work, saying it's a joke. People don't work at home. And there's other people who say this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. So what I'm trying to say is that there is not a consensus. I think the economy and society are moving towards uh, more remote work for knowledge workers and that's not a buzzword for me. A knowledge worker to me is anybody who sits in front of a computer all day long. If you do that, you're a knowledge worker. I sit in front of a computer all day long. Journalists do. Bankers do. Insurance reps do. And, and those jobs are moving towards hybrid or work at home. And this is setting going to set a precedent to employers in the uh, private sector who are unsure. And they're going to have employees coming to them and lobbying them saying, hey, look, the government of Canada said it's okay. They just have backed down on this with the, and the government of Canada is the largest employer in Canada, bar none. And it sets the precedent for both uh, other governments and the private sector. So I think that this will be, um, this will legitimize remote work. And I'm not saying working at home 100% of the time, but certainly a move, a further move towards hybrid uh, models where you work, you know, three days or four days at home and come into work one day a week, that sort of thing. So I think that this will um, set a precedent for the future. Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, resolution with the PSAC strike, a tentative deal has been reached. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. In the wake of the global pandemic, the Ontario government announced today it will introduce a new mandatory education curriculum for elementary and high school students that aims to increase mental health literacy in the wake of continuing challenges emerging after the pandemic. The new curric uh, curriculum will be introduced in the next school year and will involve updates to the career studies course that is required for grade 10 students as well as mandatory for teachers and students on mental health literacy for grade 7 and 8. The changes were spurred on 
on by the advocacy of a first-term Burlington, Ontario, progressive conservative MPP, Natalie Pierre, who has pushed for greater focus on mental health education in schools following the loss of her son, Mike, in 2017. To talk more about all of this, Natalie Pierre was with us, MPP for Burlington, parliamentary assistant to Ontario's Minister of Colleges and Universities, and with us now. Natalie, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, my pleasure. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. First of all, Natalie, my condolences. I, I can't even imagine what it's like for a family to go that uh, through all of that. What can you tell us about Mike, and, and how was this a catalyst for you? Yeah, um, so Mike was an average teenage kid. He was um, 17 years old. He um, did everything 17-year-old kids like to do. He seemed he was like every other student. Um, he had a part-time job. Um, he was interested in pursuing post-secondary. He had a good group of friends. Uh, he attended high school dances, and anyone who was observing him would have just seen a normal kid heading towards adulthood. Um, but we now know that that was not the case. When did you or did you realize that something was wrong, that this wasn't the picture you thought it was? Um I didn't. Mm. I didn't. And uh, hence the reason. Um, so in the months and years that followed Mike's death, I was shocked at just how many people um, approached me to share their mental health struggles and experiences and told me how they suffered in silence. And I think having this type of lived experience almost makes you a, a safe person. Mm. Um, and Strangers actually will come up and just feel comfortable kind of sharing their struggles with you. And I was shocked. It just, you know, they were neighbors and students and coworkers and family members um, who came forward to share their struggles. And I, I just thought that there was something that we could do about this. And so probably about 2019, so probably a year and a half to two years after Mike died, um, I started to advocate um, at all levels of government, really, to uh, start talking to our students um, more directly about mental health, mental health issues, symptoms, um, interventions. Um, just normalize the conversation about mental health in a very direct and intentional way. Um, we know our schools do a fantastic job at teaching literacy, and really I see teaching mental health education no different than teaching physical health education or math. And um, yeah, so it was I had delegated to various levels of government, and then one uh, evening back in 2019 received a call from uh, Minister of Education Stephen Lecce asking me to attend an event at the Centre for Mental Health and Addiction in Toronto um, that was doubling the funding for student mental health supports in schools. And so um, I think that just continued with my advocacy work and fast forward a few years later and I decided to run to be the MPP for Burlington um, and to advocate for more change. What would you like to see in the classroom? Um, is this about the discussion so we can identify uh, those that may be struggling? What, what what do you want to see in the classroom? Yeah, so I don't think, uh, you know, if it's about identifying students, 
who are suffering with mental health that didn't work for my son. And so uh, I think uh, this is different. This is actually teaching our students about mental health, about mental health illness, so that they can recognize uh, symptoms or feelings if they're struggling or if someone that they know is struggling. Um, And it gives them, um, you know, it's about teaching them the tools and giving them the skills that they need to navigate their own mental health, not only in high school or elementary school, but, you know, possibly later on into post-secondary or into an apprenticeship opportunity and really throughout life. I think this is almost a a life skills course. Um, I'm, I'm trying to be as gentle as I can, but boy, I'm, I'm, uh, again, it's just with coping with all of this, how could we have helped Mike? How could we have, what discussions could we have had that, that maybe this would have come out or perhaps he realized he needed more help? What, what could, could we have done to help someone like him? That's a great question. I think um, that the changes that we announced today help start to help to normalize conversations about mental health. And the more we talk about um, mental health illness, mental health issues, um, I think it takes a, starts to decrease the stigma that's attached to mental health. And I think, um, you know, like I said, so many people had approached me to talk about their own struggles. And they'd never shared it with anyone before. And mm. so, you know, people have kept these struggles as a secret for years. And so really, I think normalizing these conversations, um, giving students the tools that they need to navigate mental health struggles, and then really, um, you know, letting them know where they need to go to get help. Has COVID-19 and the whole global pandemic experience, has this brought it to the forefront? Are we having these discussions now? I think we're having them more so than we have in the past. I think there's uh, still work to be done. Um, I think that Ontario is um, leading the way in terms of all of the provinces in Canada and is actually the first province in our country to make these kind of um, investments into mental health education in the classroom. So I'm, I'm very proud and I'm very hopeful. Um, I think this approach about educating students um, reaches our students where they're at and at a time in their lives when we know uh, these types of mental health issues often emerge. So it's usually uh, mental health and addiction issues tend to come to the surface between ages of 15 and 24. And so what a a great opportunity. We have our kids, we have them in class. um, We have um, a captive audience, really. And um, we have teachers who are fantastic at delivering curriculum and teaching literacy. And it's just an opportunity, I think, for everyone. I uh, only got a few seconds left here, uh, Natalie. What message do you want to convey to parents or even students? Yeah, I think this is great news. I think this is great news for parents. I think it's great news for students. I think it's great news for families. It's, uh, it's uh, giving our young people the tools that they need to manage their mental health. And it's about hope and about how we move forward. And it's about the future.
Natalie Pierre with us, MPP for Burlington, Parliamentary Assistant to Ontario's Minister of Colleges and University. The Ontario government announcing it will introduce new mandatory education in the curriculum for elementary and high school students aiming to increase mental health literacy. Natalie, thank you so much for your bravery. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Good luck. All right. Thank you so much, Scott. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. Scott, how are you today? I am well, and, and you know what? Yeah, the the we are the champions a little over the top, but when you have been wandering in the <laughs> desert for 19 years, even a sip of swamp water tastes refreshing. So, you know uh, what? It is, uh, I, I just, you know who I feel badly for is our, our good friend and colleague, Bill Kelly, who... You know, big Boston Boston Bruins fan. He yeah. he was last seen lying in the corner of his office in a fetal position, sucking his thumb and whimpering. And along I, with my along with my son and my wife, I might add. Well, you know, it's a uh, no longer. I don't think can the Boston Bruins fans taunt the Leafs about blowing a four-one lead in the third period after blowing well setting up the second biggest choke job in NHL history. I think that I think that Bruins fans may be slightly more humble today than they were prior to yesterday. Slightly. Uh, it was funny. I was watching with a friend. We were busy yakking because we thought, ah, they're going to win this. Then all of a sudden, oh, my God, they won. I can't believe it. Uh, and, of course, now off to Florida. Florida saying they're not going to send any tickets north of the border. Yeah. This reminds me of Ottawa Senators and Toronto Maple yep. Leafs. And when I lived there for a bit, the mayor was complaining that there was too many Leaf jerseys in the crowd and started whining about it, which I think did him more harm than good. But uh, is this the same th- sort of thing or just great marketing? We're holding the seats for our home fa- uh, fans. Yeah, uh, sorry, did you say fans? Fans or fan, um, you know, it, <laughs> it, 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 it is kind of funny to me because all year long, like their, their entire business model at the Florida Panthers in Sunrise, Florida, their entire business model yeah. depends on snowbirds buying seats. Yep. Cause heaven knows the people down there have about a million other things they would put ahead of hockey. And mm-hmm. so then when all of a sudden, uh, it comes time for the playoffs. They're like, yeah, we don't want you. I, you know what should happen? Honestly, first of all, it's going to be full of Leaf fans. They're going to find tickets to buy. But what would be better is if somehow the Leaf fans down there said, fine, but any, if you go through with this, we are not buying a single ticket going forward. Yeah. And suddenly I have a feeling they might say, um, let's see, what's the trade-off here? We have a building where there are Leaf fans or we go out of business because no one cares about us. Yeah, I mean, because obviously you're forgetting who supported you all year round. And you think if you're a snowbird, they're probably coming back this time of year. If you're down there, you're thinking, oh, Leafs in the playoffs, I'm going to stay for another two weeks. So not only does it help the team, it helps business down there. Yeah, and and one of the really funny parts about this is if they think that somehow Leaf fans are not going to be there, you can still, even for a playoff game, Scott, buy a ticket or a pair of tickets, fly down there and stay overnight. Mm-hmm. And it'll be cheaper than just buying a ticket to a Leaf game here for the yeah. playoffs. And yeah. and so, it, like, what they don't seemingly get is Leaf fans are willing to pay money. So, so you know what, if there's someone down there who's like, yeah, I'm not really sure, and they put their tickets on the secondary market, they will sell and Leaf fans will think nothing of it because it's still way cheaper than buying a ticket here. Uh, do you think this will uh, have the opposite effect and there'll be twice as many jerseys Probably. in the stands from the Leafs? Yeah, I, I, I actually do because I think now it's become almost a challenge. 
Like you've, you've dared us to try and find a way into the building. I do think, well, it was always, it was always going to be a lot of Leaf fans. I really believe that. But yeah, I do now think, and there are people who are on social media saying, this has now become my mission. I will find my way down there and I will show up (laughs) and I will be even more obstinate and more aggressive and louder and more ornery than I would have been. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the Florida Panthers as a business are not a great business. They don't have a lot of fans. You can see pictures of games in the midseason when there's nobody yeah. there. It, to me, is hilarious in, in, in a short-sighted kind of way that they would then say, we don't want Canadians. It, it, you're, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. That's the purest definition. Uh, you know, it was um, uh, many said that, you know, if the planet's correctly aligned, if Boston loses, if this did, 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 and it's been certainly one of those incredibly surprising first rounds where they've gone uh, six, six, seven games and such. Is this the year that the planets could correctly align for them? For the, you know, here's something that I had forgotten about, Scott, and it's, I don't believe that this indicates a conspiracy, but it's a weird thing. Gary Bettman was hired as commissioner of the NHL in the spring that the Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup. So he was not, he had not started yet. He had been hired on, but hadn't started yet. The last time a Canadian team won the Cup. It's been 30 years and every single year of Gary Bettman's tenure, there has been no Canadian team. Now some, some say, well, look, he's figured it out how to keep Canadians from winning. I don't believe that's the case. But I do think that there is an excellent, uh, better than excellent chance that you will see one of Toronto or Edmonton in the finals. That, that I, I mean, I feel very good that in saying that. And, you know, I feel, mm, I've been around the Leafs too long to make a prediction that says they will. I feel reasonably almost okay saying there's, a, <laughs> there's an okay chance that both of those teams, this could be a Toronto-Edmonton <laughs> final, which you know what would happen? Sportsnet, Rogers, which have spent, what was it, 12, whatever, billions of dollars for the NHL rights years ago, the 12-year deal, 4 billion, whatever it was. And year after year after year, all the Canadian teams pooped out. They might make all their money back in one spring if it was an Edmonton-Toronto Stanley Cup final. This would be glorious. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator coming up after the 6 o'clock news. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. See you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. To have the last word. Well, Scott, this last word is a poem from Frank. Tax his land, tax his bed, tax a table at which he's fed, tax his tractor, tax his mule, teach him taxes are the rule. Put these words upon his tomb, taxes drove me to my doom. When he's gone, do not relax, it's time to apply the inheritance tax. 